This is Melissa Fordlocken. Rosalie Petrowski. Susan, Seraph, and Jess. Editors for the Washington Square Review. Washington Square On Air showcases the poetry and fiction of the latest edition of LCC's literary journal, The Washington Square Review, read by the poets, authors, and editors themselves. Expect the unexpected as our contributors express experience and fantasy with humor, imagination, poetic license, irony, and passion. If you love language at its most original, please join us in our audio town square to celebrate a community of writers spanning from around the world to Lansing. Hi, this is Melissa Fordlocken, editor for the Washington Square Review. I'm joined today by Taffeta Chime, one of the authors for our forthcoming issue. I've asked Taffy, she said that we can call her Taffy when we're talking to her, uh, Taffy to read the opening of her selected piece. All right. My name is Taffeta, but everyone calls me Taffy. I have never met another Taffy or Taffeta, though I have heard we exist. But in March of 2010, I got a friend request on Facebook from a Taffy. I saw we had two mutual friends, so I accepted her request, excited to see another Taffy. This Taffy was quite a bit older than I was. I had just graduated college, and she was a proud grandmother. She soon wrote me a message. Hi, I don't expect a response, just wanted to say I'm glad someone in the world has this name. I wrote her back that I was also ecstatic to see another Taffy. I told her that it was actually a nickname, and she answered, my full legal name is Taffy. You'd be surprised how many people ask me what my real name is. Then they're confused when I tell them that's it. If you're ever in my neck of the woods, send me a message and I'll be glad to shake your hand. We sent messages back and forth to get to know each other. She was a retired teacher and had lived near my hometown for 25 years. We talked about how it was strange that we had lived so close to each other and had never met. Yeah, well, even my kids are older than you, so if I did run into you, I wouldn't know you, she wrote. I feel like I could hear her chuckle through the computer. We talked about our mutual friends, and then she said she found me when she was trying to get back to her own Facebook profile page. I typed in Taffy, and your name popped up. That was just too weird. While we messaged, I took some time to look through her profile page and saw that she posted she was having surgery. So when she wrapped up the conversation by wishing me a good afternoon, I told her that she would have a successful surgery. Beautiful. Thank you for reading that. The opening is quite lighthearted, but the piece takes a little bit of a shift, and we're not going to tell the listeners what the shift is, because you'll need to read it yourself. But let us know what was going on in your life when you wrote it and how you came to write this piece. Well, this, this piece is a 100% true story, and it's just, uh, it was a very surreal moment to me. And I think as a writer, you have these moments that either you're experiencing, or you see, or you hear, and you just you have the, the need to explore it in writing. And I forget exactly why I originally wrote this. I think it was for some sort of prompt in like a community writing group or something, but I've sort of held on to it and um, have kept it as a creative nonfiction piece. And I just think it's an interesting exploration of identity. And it, I have an unusual perspective as someone who has an unusual name and has been through this experience of sort of looking through a strange, distorted mirror in ways. So was the process of writing the piece cathartic, or did it give you a sense of closure on the event? I think so, yeah. I think, you know, in the piece, you don't find out sort of what happens to Taffy, and I didn't either until 
a while later, I don't remember now the the time that had passed, but I I felt a lot of regret for not getting to meet her and for um, just having that opportunity pass by that I had looked so forward to. And so I guess that exploring it was a bit of a catharsis and some closure. But again, I think the main reason for showing it is that, you know, when you have people, you know, I I know lots of people who share names with others and I often wonder what does that feel like to like know somebody who has your name? Like to me, my name is my identity. And the fact that there's no one else I know with my name, it's just very bizarre to find somebody who has my name, you know, and it, it just brings up a whole different world of feelings that I've never experienced before. And so I, I really just wanted to kind of share what that felt like. <laughs> well, what I, one of the things that I liked about the piece is that it does, it reaches out to people in on the issue of the unique name, but the other part, the message is something that other people can relate to. And I think that's one of the really special things about the piece is that it works on both those levels. Mm-hmm. When you wrote the piece, were you thinking mostly about the name issue or the other themes? Um, I think there, there's a lot of, you know, it's hard to talk about it without talking about it. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of questions of mortality. And um, I think that that is kind of sort of the underlying message that I think is the gravitas of, of the piece is not only observing someone who shares the same identity with me, but then we have a shared mortality and kind of coming to terms with that and seeing that was, um, again, just surreal. A surreal is really the most apt word, I think, to describe the whole experience. And yeah, so observing that mortality and seeing how people would respond to the identity in that context was something that I really wanted to explore and share about. Let's talk a little bit about your creative process in general. Because one of the unique things about you is that you've written a lot of different genres, poetry, creative nonfiction, fiction, novels. How do you think about the creative process and how do you work through it? Well, like I said, I think a big part of it is just there, there are these moments that you just are like, whoa, I need to write about that. Um, and sometimes those it feels more natural for that to be explored in poetry, especially if it's a really emotional moment or even like a like a vignette kind of thing I feel like those need to be explored more in poetry but I think at my heart of the craft of writing I'm a storyteller and I love people and so you know novels and short stories and that kind of thing are more to explore humanity through exploring characters and people's lives and the arcs that they live and then if those characters are real then you have to do more of a nonfiction slant to it. <laughs> How about things like setting? How do you think about that? It sounds like events spark your curiosity. And then how do you work the setting into that? Um, it's really dependent, I think, on, on the piece itself. Um, my second novel, The Last, setting is a very important part of the story. And part of the reason why I chose to write that as a novel was to kind of explore setting more. Honestly, Uh, incorporating setting in my writing is something that I thought for a while was a weakness of mine. There were a lot of times that it sort of felt like, you know, that, that um, typical prompt that you get in a writing class where it's like, put these two characters in a closet and see how they act. I felt like a lot of times, a lot of my stories just felt like that. And so the last was actually my undergraduate thesis project. So it was not just about the creative process, but also 
working on the craft and incorporating a lot more research into it too. And so having the setting is almost like another character in some ways, right? And there are some some stories that the setting is a very important part of the piece, but then there are others that it's not. In this one, meeting Taffy, you know, I mentioned that she lived near my hometown. And the fact that, you know, I, I'm from Tennessee. I know I'm, Lansing is in Michigan. I'm far away from you guys. But we kind of live in a rural area. And Taffy is not typically like a, a Southern name, you know, like Lila May or Sarah Beth or something like that. There's not a whole lot of Taffies around here. And so I think that that made that, that choice of setting for this piece was especially poignant to see another Taffy in Robertson County, Tennessee, of all places, you know, was really unusual and unique. So yeah, I think it's really just kind of dependent on the piece, uh, the setting and the context of it can change. And um, in some pieces, it's more important and some it's not as important. It just depends on what the story itself is lending itself to. You've mentioned writing classes a couple times. So it made me curious if you could talk about your um, education as a writer and how that's played into what you produce. Oh, absolutely. So I will say I, I have been writing since I could hold a pencil pretty much. Um, my first quote unquote book was when I was seven years old <laughs> and, you know, it was on loose leaf paper, but I thought it was, you know, a New York times bestseller. And so my, my parents and some of my teachers in elementary school really noticed that I love to write and I love to craft stories. When I was in elementary school, I was put into the gifted program because of my writing. The gifted teacher that we had encouraged me to write short stories for a program called the Future Problem Solving Program, where each year they had futuristic sort of sci-fi prompts that were based on current event topics. And I did that from fourth grade all the way through high school. And it was a really interesting way to, you know, a really interesting prompt, I guess, every year to have a short story. It was 1,500 words or less every year on some topic with this required research that you had to show that you had done. And so I think that really that practice starting from fourth grade in the context of school was really what solidified my habits as a writer. And then in middle school, I started writing a ton just as a hobby. It was, you know, again, in rural Tennessee, my parents live in the middle of the woods on top of a hill in a hollow. Like I had no friends that were around to play with outside. So I would come home and write. That was what I did for fun. So I was a prolific writer in middle school just for fun. And then in high school was when I published my first novel as an independent project, again, through some of my teachers who were kind of trying to help me sort of see what this would be like professionally. And then I went to university as a creative writing student. I was an English and writing major. And um, I actually minored in theater, not because I was necessarily interested in going into theater, but because, again, I thought that some of the strengths and the focuses in theater were some of my weaknesses in writing, character development, setting development, condensed storytelling in a way. And uh, it really did strengthen my writing, I think, to take those theater classes. And then, like I said, during the undergrad time was when I wrote my second novel. And then pretty much from there, I did a lot more nonfiction work as um, a grad student, you know, a lot more research thesis type essays and that kind of thing. And then I actually entered into the education field as a teacher and taught a lot of reading and writing classes, some creative writing. And now that I am transitioning out of education and into motherhood, um, yeah, I'm kind of stepping away from education finally, both as a student and a teacher. 
but as a mom, you know, I'm, I'm still a teacher in a lot of ways. And, um, my daughter has actually just recently started to tell stories. She's four years old. I've told her recently, like, Hey, you know that your mom writes stories, right? And yeah. So the education is always there, but I really do think that I'm very thankful for my, my coaches and my teachers all throughout my education who have held my hand and saw the, the passion that I had and wanted to hone that and help me um, learn about the craft, practice the craft and see what it took to make that as a professional possibility for me. I need to take a quick sidestep and ask the question that people are wondering, did you name your daughter an unusual name? <laughs> I, I did. So this is opening a whole other can of worms. My husband and my husband is actually from China. And um, between my undergrad and my graduate year, I took a year to study abroad in China and I met him there. And so we've been married now. We just passed our ninth anniversary, actually. And we have a four-year-old and a newborn. She's about two weeks old now. And we always, like, my husband and I both have Chinese names and English names. And I think a lot of people who have language backgrounds that are so different from each other kind of have to do that, especially if the writing systems are different, the pronunciation is different. It's really hard for English speakers, for example, to pronounce my husband's name. So he, he goes by Shane. But when we found out that we were having a child we made the conscious decision of picking a name that worked in both Mandarin and English and was the same name. So my first daughter's name is Bailey, but it's spelled B-E-I-L-I, and it means jasmine bud in Mandarin. And then our second daughter, who was just born, her name is Eileen, and it's spelled A-I-L-I-N, which means like a, a shower of love in Mandarin. So they're both, you know, kind of typical English names, but they have the Mandarin spelling so that whether they are in China or the U.S. or if they are speaking Mandarin or English, they, they have their name the same. And it kind of goes back to some of those themes in meeting Taffy, where I wanted them, you know, even when I married a foreigner and we were talking about the possibility of kids, I knew that, you know, multilingual, multicultural children often have a shift in, in identity. And I wanted them to always feel like they were themselves no matter where they were. So it, I felt really strongly about giving them a name that never changed because to me, my, my name is so much a part of my identity. So yeah, so we have Bailey and Eileen, but they're spelled with the Mandarin spelling. That's beautiful. You mentioned being in China and that made me wonder, how did that play into your writing? Did you were you influenced by what you experienced in China? They must have different ways of telling stories. Oh, yes, absolutely. And um, I've actually been doing more reading recently of Chinese literature. And my husband and I kind of have a little joke because um, my Chinese reading level is not super great. So I've been reading a lot of children's books, but it's been a lot of poetry. And I asked him, I was like, you know, I'm understanding this is another poem that pretty much just says, here comes spring. Spring is so pretty. Look at these birds. Here's some water. Here's some flowers. Am I right? And he was like, yeah, that's pretty much a lot of Chinese poetry. And I was like, I'm sure it's a lot more beautiful than that. But essentially, it's just look at this pretty scene from nature. <laughs> and I'm really downplaying it. I mean, the language is beautiful. But just with my elementary understanding of it, it just feels like there's a bird. Here's a flower. Here's some water. <laughs> um but it, it really is interesting. Nature, again, going back to setting, nature is such a huge part of Chinese literature. 
and even the stories that are more focused on character and on events, the, the setting is very important to, to what's happening. I think about one story that I read that was about a young boy who was at a well and the well in his, in his village was very much a part of the story. And um, so things like that, where the, the, the setting is such a huge uh, part of the story itself. But yeah, my time in China hugely influenced me, not just as a writer, but I feel like my, a lot of my life really kind of turned around uh, because of my, my experience in China. I have written some poems that are sort of multilingual and bilingual, and it's really hard to find a home for those <laughs> because, you know, especially if you're looking into English publications, there's often a question of like, okay, well, do we use the Chinese characters? Do we need to translate these in footnotes? Do we need to have the pronunciation? Because in poetry, you know, the the visuals on the page and the sounds of the words are just as important as the words themselves. And so when you incorporate another language, there's a lot of questions as to how you're going to handle that. But yeah, I, I, um, I have a lot of my writing that has international characters, multicultural experiences, multilingual diversity, I guess. Yeah, it so, sounds like your husband would be a good influence that way. Yeah. <laughs> Do you talk through your work with him? Not so much, actually. So my husband, um, I don't want to throw him under the bus, but he's not a very literary person. <laughs> so he enjoys reading some of my stuff, but a lot of it, he's kind of like, you know, this isn't my thing. And I'm like, that's fine. So we have other interests that we share, but writing and reading is not really one of them. He appreciates the work I do and he's super proud of me and everything. But as far as um, using him as a sounding board, not so much. <laughs> so who is your sounding board? Um, I'd say my first person that I typically go to is my mom. My mom is also a writer um, and she's an editor too. So a lot of times when I'm questioning, you know, does this sound okay? Or do you think that this pitch is okay? That kind of thing. I typically go to my mom first, but I have, you know, a growing network of, of writing friends and uh, former classmates and that kind of thing that I reach out to a lot too. Have you ever worked in a workshop setting? Oh yes. Yeah. Lots of times, lots of times. Beneficial? Yeah, you know, sometimes yes, sometimes no. It's kind of hit and miss sometimes with workshops. I will say that probably my favorite workshop experience was one that we kind of um, formed ourselves. You know, I think especially in school, you're sometimes forced into a workshop experience in classes or in a like a writing center or tutoring sort of situation. Or if you're in a writing group, they will ask you to be part of a workshop. But there was one writing class that I was a part of that some girls and I, um, we became really good friends and we sort of started writing together um, outside of class, just on our own projects and stuff. And it's really cool to see how we have all kind of spread out and continued writing professionally. One of those girls is now a script supervisor at Netflix. She works currently on the Cuphead show and has some other stuff that she's working on. Another girl was an editor for a magazine out of Australia, like a food and, and travel magazine that was just like, hey, cool. And then another one is more of like a songwriter, poet. Uh, she's moved to Colorado, I think now. So I still think really fondly back to, you know, the late nights of writing with those girls. And I feel like we were all kind of vibing together and sort of had the same sort of, what's the word, same sort of mindset, I guess, as far as our writing was concerned. But then, yeah, there are other workshops where you're just not vibing at all. And you're like, okay, bye. <laughs> that can be a struggle as a writer to know when to take from the workshop and when to leave behind. 
Absolutely. The reason I asked you is because you've been writing for so long. You must have dealt with that issue on more than one occasion. Oh, yes. And, you know, I think part of being a writer is developing a thick skin and sort of learning whose opinion matters and whose doesn't. And I was even just talking to my mom. She was having a frustration with reaching out to somebody to collaborate on some research. And she just kind of felt like he wasn't giving her any time of day. And I was like, you know what? That happens. And when that happens, you just say, if you don't want me, I don't want you. Bye. (laughs) And I think that, you know, you come across sometimes those people that are kind of gatekeepers and pretentious and, and it's just not helpful. So you just have to, you know, shake the dust off your sandals and go on. Yeah. So I think it's a matter of learning to trust yourself, trust your own judgment and trust your process. Mm hmm. Absolutely. So what kind of stuff are you working on now? (laughs) You mentioned that I kind of have a broad range of writing and that continues to hold true. I just recently for the month of April, April was National Poetry Month and I challenged myself to write a poem every day of the month and I did that and I'm actually kind of thinking of turning it into a chapbook. I'm also working on a creative nonfiction long project that's probably going to be sort of a fiction slash memoir, but like not mine, (laughs) someone else's memoir. Does that work? Uh, Just a biography that I'm thinking will probably be finished in anywhere from like three to five years from now. I also have some nonfiction long form ideas of like a, I'm going to talk to an editor. I know about maybe writing a book on environmentalism from a spiritual perspective. Um, I've also got some ideas in the back of my head for some more novels. So there's just, there's a whole lot of things going on. It sounds great. It'll keep you busy for a long time. Yes. If people want to check you out, check out your current work or follow you, where can they find you online? The best places to find me are um, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And I actually just opened up a fan house account too. um, And those are all under Taffeta Chime. My Instagram is a private account because it has pictures of my daughters and that kind of thing. But if someone wanted to slide into my DMs, you know, and say, hey, I you know, I'm interested in your writing, then maybe we could talk. But um, Twitter, Facebook, those are the best places to find me at Taffeta Chime. Great. Well, thanks a lot for coming and spending time with us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me so much. Thank you for listening to our talented poets and authors. Until next time, this has been Washington Square On Air. Where we showcase selections from Lansing Community College's literary journal, The Washington Square Review, a publication featuring writers from the Great Lakes State, across the nation, and around the world. To find out more about The Washington Square Review, visit lcc.edu WSR. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed sharing.